if you uh, brought a Bible with you to open to Luke 11. As you're doing that, we'll dismiss our school-aged kids to head towards the back. I really was incredible. I was like, we, we don't even have to preach. Let's just keep singing. It's interesting on this Palm Sunday, as Jesus is entering uh, the road that leads to Jerusalem, and they're uh, basically throwing him a parade of conquest, as was typical in that day when a commander would come back from uh, some sort of war or conquest. He would come back in riding on a regal horse. They would gather on both sides and they would wave the palm branches to the conquering king. And it's a pretty funny picture too because they're there, the palm branches are there. Jesus enters not riding on some royal horse, but if you're a Parts and Rec fan, he's coming in on Sebastian, little Sebastian. <laughs> he's coming in on a donkey. Where's the royal horse? And he was coming in humility to lay his life down. And it's funny, we just sang that song, he's worthy of it all. The Bible says that Angels are around the throne, even right now, singing that very song. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And that one day, all the saints in Christ, in the new heavens and new earth, will join in chorus from every tribe and nation and tongue. And we will sing that anthem to the one who is worthy of it all. Pretty powerful to think about. This is Holy Week, as Jason pointed out, and the things of Holy Week. And families, you received a little Holy Week uh, worship guide. I encourage you to use this with your kiddos. If you didn't get one of these, I think they passed them out in the kids' area. If you didn't get one of these, feel free to pick one up. I think we have a few left out on the tables out front, which is kind of a neat thing. The Gospel of John is what most of the church patterns the, uh, the church calendar after. And like any good movie, it spends a little time early on kind of doing character development and who all's the characters in the story in Gospel of John. But the last two-thirds of the Gospel of John is about the last week of Jesus' life. It centers around this thing. And almost ten chapters are really about like the last day of Jesus' life. The last two days, maybe. And so, this is just, if you're not, uh, if you don't normally go to church, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, this is, this, is pretty, this is pretty important to us this last week. And all that we believe and all that we chase after and all that we hope in. It's a little uncharacteristic, but I want to talk about prayer today. We see certainly Jesus praying so much. He prayed in that last week a lot. We're going to talk about some more of that on, on Friday, Jesus' prayer. We know that he prayed aloud because the disciples heard it, this great prayer of unity in John 17. We know he wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
most of the night. Jesus knew something about prayer that many of us don't know, I guess. He prayed with a certain sort of intimacy with the Father. And because he prayed that way, the disciples came and asked him about prayer. In chapter 11 and verse 1, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he'd finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins. If we, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You're probably more familiar with the longer version of that found in Matthew's gospel. In verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to say before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he's your friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm going to pray aloud and I'd invite you to pray silently right where you're at. Would you just ask the Lord to speak to you this morning? It would be a tragedy to do all that you did to get to this place just to hear me preach, to hear Rachel sing, to hear whatever else we got going on and not hear from the Lord. Father, you are holy and awesome, majestic, all-powerful. And Lord, when we see the immensity of who you are, the one who opened his mouth and spoke planets into existence, we see our frailty, our weakness. We do ask you to forgive us of the things, the so many times that we trusted in ourselves instead of in you. But we're so thankful for grace this morning. That Jesus, you came not just to accomplish a task, but to be with us, full of grace and truth. And Father, I ask that you would help us this morning, that we would see you for who you really are. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. We've been in this passage for now three or four weeks. I don't know, I kind of quit counting. This is our last week in this passage. And I pray as we've kind of just kind of gone a little slower that you kind of absorbed a little bit more. We've been in this series called Pray What You've Got. It's hard to pray what you don't have, and a lot of us try to do that. We try to muster up some sort of faith, or we try to fake it till we make it. 
And that's not really how prayer works. Prayer is us bringing its conversation. It's bringing who we are to God. It's this conversation with God. That's what prayer is. And in this passage specifically, if we pan out a little bit, what Jesus has taught them is he's taught them what to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And we spent a couple weeks on that. And then he's taught them how to pray. The story we looked at last week that we're, we're, to, we're to pray with shameless audacity or impudence, maybe your translation says. It literally means with, without downcast eyes, just to boldly bust up in the room and ask God for what's on your heart. That's how we're supposed to pray. Specifically, the text last week for our friends that are around us, that's how we're supposed to pray. But today in this last little section... We're going to talk about who we're praying to, what to pray, how to pray, but who we're praying to. Jesus wants to make sure that these disciples know who they're praying to. Because really what matters most in your praying is not the technique that you use, but who you're convinced is on the other side listening to you pray. As Jason said, we've had 24 hours of prayer yesterday. It was incredible. Those of you, especially those of you who got up in the wee hours of the night, I know, I know Jason and Chaz and some others just, I mean, they, they were there through, uh, they might be in a little bit of a jet lag today from their lack of sleep. It was amazing to get there yesterday and to walk in that room and to feel, I was talking to my mom this morning about it. She said, I felt like I entered in on someone else's nickel. Like someone else had already set the tone. They had set the stage. They had been persevering in prayer. They had created the atmosphere. And I walked in to a father who was sitting there waiting for me. And that's my heart today. So many of us come with so, such a skewed version of who's listening to us. That we prayed maybe and didn't give what we think we should have gotten. Or he didn't answer in the timely manner that... We thought he should answer. Maybe he answered no. Maybe he said wait. He answered. God answers prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes wait. Not now. And he didn't come through in our timing. And because of that, we've, we felt like he's not interested. Or maybe you've had someone in spiritual leadership not use their spiritual leadership well. And they actually abused spiritual leadership. And that affected you or hurt you or harmed you or influenced you in some way. And because of that, you kind of view God at some weird distance. And that's, that's really not who he is. And I love that Jesus, the disciples come and ask Jesus. Jesus teaches to pray. And he uses most of this passage not to tell us what to pray or how to pray, but just to make it really clear that we know who we're praying to. There's a buzzword called deconstruction now, and typically it's used for people who are leaving the faith, deconstructing their faith, but I don't really hear that word exactly that way. One of the things I love to do is take things that are broken and deconstruct them and remake them into something maybe even more beautiful than they were before. And that's the process of deconstruction and reconstruction. What the scripture would call that is just maturing. It's us getting a clearer vision of who God really is. Maybe not who you grew up to thinking he was. Maybe not who Hollywood portrays him to be or someone else that you heard of or maybe your false ideation of who he is, but who he really is. 
And when we read God's word, we're always, in a sense, deconstructing and reconstructing. We're clarifying, we're understanding, we're seeing. Jesus calls our enemy, our adversary, the devil, the father of all lies. And what he loves to do is skew your vision of who the father is. And so he'll wait until you're down, till you've been knocked down, till you're walking through difficulty, till you don't really understand all the events around your life. And he will take you at that point and he'll sow little seeds of lies about who the father is. This is what he did. We, we know this is his schemes because we see this at the very beginning of when Adam and Eve were there. And he comes in and he just starts sowing little things about the father. Oh, the father doesn't really trust you. That's why he hadn't let you see of all who he is. Sowing little seeds. And so that you begin to think that's who God really is and that's not who he is. This is why reading who God is from his very word, specifically through the lens of Jesus. Scripture says that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. So if we want to know who God is and what it would be like to hang out with him and what it's like to pray to him because he's the one that's listening, then we best look at who Jesus is. And we interpret everything, all those Old Testament stories that don't make a lot of sense to us, we interpret all of those through the actual life of Jesus as described through the word of God. So Jesus explains here to the disciples. He wants the disciples to know that a vibrant prayer life does not come from technique, but from knowing who you're talking to. He's in a sense trying to lift the eyes of the disciples to the good father on the other side of those prayers. As the psalmist said, my eyes go to the hills. That's where my help comes from. And Jesus is saying, let me, let me introduce you to the, who, the father who's listening to those prayers and the one who made those hills. And the one who's actually bringing the help. Let me, let me introduce you to the Father. The disciples had witnessed this powerful prayer life of Jesus and it was magnetic. There were tears and cries, Hebrews says, not formulaic, not cold. It was personal and full of emotion and it's powerful and tender. It was built on an eternity of relationship and trust between the Son and the Father. And this is how Jesus prayed. I was at a coffee shop this week working on this very sermon. I had my headphones in, had a little instrumental jazz music playing in the background. You can never trust a coffee shop what they're going to play. And when you have headphones in, less people speak to you. So I'm uh, there working on my sermon, and I notice just the corner of my eye, this lady walks in, and she orders some drinks, and I can't hear. I've got the noise cancellation headphones in, but I... I witnessed the face of the barista kind of move from cheerful and happy to a bit somber. And she left her little spot at the point of cell and walked around the counter. And it looked like from what I could tell that they were strangers, they didn't know each other. And the barista threw her arms around this lady who was ordering the drink. And they hugged. And not like, not like a bro hug was like, man, good to see you, you know, count to three, one, two, three, time to let go. Any more than that, people, you know, going to think things. It's just one, two, three. It's what we do. They fully embraced. You know the kind of hugging that you do where you begin to kind of sway back and forth? That's what they were doing in the middle of this coffee shop. And I looked up just puzzled what's going on. You don't see that every day. 
And both of them are weeping. In a sense, this is how the Father wants us to pray. That we bring our heaviness to him and he just wraps us up in a hug. You say, Luke, how do, how do we know that that's what God wants to do? Because that's what Jesus did. That he would often embrace those that he healed. He would hug his friends, Mary and Martha, and certainly Lazarus that had come out of the grave. And we see even in the Last Supper that John is literally like snuggling with him, not just hugging. He's laying on his chest. And Jesus shows us what the Father's like, and Jesus showed us that he was a person of physical affection, especially those that were hurting. Let me tell you a couple things about the Father that our text points out today. First, that our Father is personal and powerful. He's personal. We Literally, Jesus says, when you address him, call him our Father. And that translation sounds real formal. And in real English, it's calling pa- Papa or Daddy or whatever that intimate nickname you have for a father is, that, that kind of thing. You can call him Papa. Not only that, but he's so personal, you can ask him for your daily bread, for the things that you need to live and to, to move on in life. A few verses down in Matthew's account of, of the Lord's Prayer, he does this compare contrast thing again we're going to see it a lot today actually and he says that God feeds and cares for the birds now if you feed and care for the birds in your backyard certainly you would feed and care for your kids that are inside the house wouldn't you as a matter of fact every time you see a bird it's this great reminder that God cares for us and not just to sustain us he cares for the birds in abundance so he says your father knows what you need so ask him. If he knows, Luke, why don't we ask him? Because that's how a relationship works. He doesn't just desire to take the place of the divine benefactor for us. He wants a relationship with you. As a matter of fact, James says oftentimes we don't receive things because we don't ask him for it. So ask him. Bring your prayers and your burdens and your anxieties to him. We serve a personal God. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Psalm says he knows your thoughts before you think them. Now that's a God who knows you. I don't know what I thought yesterday. Mostly really dumb stuff probably with just a few epiphanies of brilliance. But most of it pretty dumb God knows you so intimately. Your fears, your worries, your concerns, the things you keep yourself busy so you don't even have to know what's underneath the surface. God knows all those things. Your habits, your hang-ups. He's personal, but he's also powerful. Jesus says when you pray to him, call him our Father. Hallowed be your name. In the same sentence. This personal, powerful God, as we sang a little bit, this lion-like lamb. He's fierce as a lion, but he's as approachable as a lamb. 
Hallowed literally means set apart. It is, it is to say that there is no one like God. He is completely unique. He's not just a better person or a super person. He is altogether different. Holy and set apart. Hallowed is your name. He is personal and powerful. He's powerful because he's literally bringing his kingdom like a conquering king. Literally pushing back the kingdom of darkness and expanding the kingdom of light. This is incredible. This is how powerful God is. Let me remind us, when you're praying, you are praying to an immensely powerful and creative and generous and intimate father. Jeremiah 27 says, with my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it. In the creativity and curiosity and power of God, he dreamed up a hippo and a rhino and a giraffe. Every animal, every fish of the sea, every person who has ever existed, God created that. I was thinking about this. I have this picture of my girls when they were young at the beach. You got that picture? I don't know what they're doing. Um, Claire looks like she's praying, and Ellie looks like, what is that? What is Izzy doing? I keep this picture on my phone. I look at it almost every day. One look at this photo, and I'm reminded of everything I know to be true about God. He's the creator of everything that I love. I'm a big sucker for the beach. Beaches and waves and sea life and dolphins. Maybe you're not a beach guy, you're a mountain guy. Every waterfall, every crevice, every hike, every mountain peak. Every animal you see on the way up and every animal you pass on the way down. sunrises and sunsets and the night sky and the full moon just looking out you see beauty and goodness and truth and sometimes it's helpful to know who God is just to start there with everything that we love and the creator of everything that we love is God isn't that amazing to think about I'm such a sucker for sunrises and sunsets. Claire and I send them to each other multiple times a week. I was looking on the phone to show them to you, but sunsets don't have the awe just as a picture. You got to experience them for yourself, don't you? I could put a sunset up here and you would be like, hmm. But if you're there, if you're not hurried just for long enough, it's a few minutes of just awesomeness. And every time I see him, I think God did this. This intimate, creative, powerful father in heaven. Now imagine I'd never seen the sunset. And all I could do is watch Claire experience the sunset. And I just looked at her face. She squinted her eyes a little bit, slightly smiled, a look of seeing something awesome. And I could ask her about it and she could tell me. But you know the best thing I could do is just turn around and see the sunset for myself. This is what Jesus is trying to do with the Father in this passage. Hey, disciples, get around. Just look at him for yourself.
Psalms 19 talks about the power in creation. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from a pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes a circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. God gave us the sun, and that ought to answer any doubts that we have about his power to answer our prayers. He gave us the sun. A life on this planet derives all of life from the sun. This celestial nuclear device with the surface temperature of over 5,000 degrees Celsius. Our moms told us never to look directly at it. And when we did normally take a peek, it looked like a little nickel up in the sky. And yet, as our science advanced and we see what the sun really is and how big it is, I was reading this week and I couldn't believe it. I had to double check it for myself. You can fit the size of it. You can fit a million earths, 1.3 actually, inside the sun. A million earths. Unconceivable amounts of energy are generated at its core as hydrogen converts to helium by nuclear fusion. I don't really understand what is going on. One solar flare releases more energy than 10 million volcanoes. And even as I studied this, I just felt so small. A God that big and that powerful that creates things like that. And let's not even talk about the galaxies and the galaxies upon galaxies and how big and how far, how great they are. And the prophet says that our God measures them with the span of his hand. That's incredible. And this helps me remember when I'm praying that I dropped a piece of wood on my toe and I'm praying that it's not broken. That prayer is not too big for God. And I'm praying that my finances grow somehow. And that prayer is not too big for God. And I'm praying for my kids. And that prayer is not too big for God. This helps me realize that God is powerful enough for whatever I'm praying for. And yet he's personal enough that he lets me call him Papa. Remember, this is the point God was making with Job. You ever read that in Job 38? We don't have time to read the whole thing. I just want to read a few verses. I just want you to think of God's trying to make the point to Job. Job, I'm bigger than you think I am. Where were you, God says, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out its surveying lines? What supports its foundation and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside of its boundaries as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness. For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far, no further you will come. Here your proud waves must stop. He says to Job, Job, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise from the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath the seal and it's robed in brilliant colors. That's the power of God. The power of God through creation, not only did he create it, the Old Testament contains many stories as the new of God stepping in and altering the physical laws of gravity and time and even death at some points. 
that this powerful yet personal God, Jesus tells us that's who we're talking to. And words seem a bit ridiculous at this point, but let me say clearly that power is not an issue with God. His resources are unlimited. It is this person, is this the person that we have in mind when we pray? We must turn our gaze in the direction of God or something that reminds us of him to get a mental picture of who God actually is. He's powerful and personal. But next, he's tender and he's trustworthy. Again, we see these very things in our text today in verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the heavenly father? Tender and trustworthy. He's tender because he's using the illustration of a father and his kids. This is Jesus picked this illustration. Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is one who's existed from the very from all eternity with the Father. So he's trying to get us to understand what it's like. And he says, he uses this illustration of a father and a son, a father and his daughter. I love that he uses this illustration. Is there anything more tender than that? And then he kind of makes a turn. And it's kind of confusing at first read. Jesus says, if you who are evil love to give good gifts to your kids. Evil's a big word, isn't it? Couldn't he use a different word? Couldn't he use the word stubborn maybe? Why is Jesus using that word in this context? Just to remind us how sinful we are? No, no, that's not his point. It's because most of us are at our most loving and tender when we're dealing with our kids. Even those of us in this room who aren't good people. We're most... We try to be good to our kids. Yet compared to God's love for his children, even the best parent on the best day would be classified as evil. Think how tenderly you love your kids. How you get up from your sleep and go lay in bed with them because they think a monster's in the room. How ridiculous is that? But you're willing to go? What would your prayers for others really look like if you believe God had that kind of love for you and the rest of the world? You would pray boldly with shameless audacity. I have one more parable in here. Flip over uh, to Luke 18. Jesus told a similar parable in Luke 18, and we'll try to get through it quickly. And he told them this parable, for, starting in verse 1. Reynolds mentioned this a few weeks ago to start off our prayer series. And he told him this parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. It's a sermon in itself right there. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, the judge did. But after he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then Jesus says, this is like praying to God. 
it's a little weird that he used this illustration. And I think, why would you not use the illustration of a righteous judge? Why would you not use the illustration of a loving, caring neighbor? Why would you not use the illustration of a loving, caring father? You see, let me tell you something about parables. When you listen to a parable, you're, you're usually thinking, okay, somebody in this parable is me. Somebody in this parable is God. That's how parables work. That's why Jesus used them to convey to us heavenly purpose and meaning in a way that we can understand. And this one's a little confusing because the disciples, okay, okay, which one of us, we got to be the old needy widow here, and that would make God the unrighteous judge? You're saying that God is like a grumpy old judge who doesn't really care and only gives in to this woman or to us, his kids, when we won't stop annoying him? I mean, seriously, I wouldn't be the one that wants to make that comparison, but Jesus did. I mean, the point seems pretty straightforward. If you want something from God, you must keep banging on the door. And eventually he'll respond to you, not because he loves you, because you're just such a bother to him. Right? Is there any other way to read this? Here's the beauty of this. The point Jesus is making is not to compare God to an unjust judge, but to contrast him with one. Jesus is using this rabbinical argument called call vahomer. I put it on the, on the screen just so you would know it. And we don't do a lot of Greek Hebrew words here. But Jesus teaches so much like this. This is going to help, I think, us understand. It's literally translated, how much more? This is what Jesus keeps seeing. It starts and it moves from the lesser to the greater. By proving the lesser is true, then certainly, without a doubt, we would understand that the greater other thing has to be true. Another way of saying it, if, if a candle can bring warmth, how much more could a bonfire? Or if a candle puts out light, how much more would a tor torch? Or how much more would the sun? Moving lesser to the greater, if a vegan meal is good, how much more would a delicious, well-cooked piece of meat be with that vegan meal? It would be amazing, right? If the lesser is true, then the greater has to be true. That's what he's saying. If you're vegan, we love you. God made animals. Um, here's what he's saying. Even if an unrighteous, selfish judge would grant answers because of persistent asking, and even if a sleepy, stingy friend will eventually get up and give us our request, cow Homer, how much more? Would our heavenly father who loves us and cares for us and constantly watches over us give us what we need when we come persistently to him and ask him if an evil father would do this, how much more would a perfect father, if the sleepy neighbor would give you what you need, how much more would an alert and loving father, if an unrighteous judge would grant justice, how much more would an attentive and just judge like our father? Back to Luke 11. Through these parables, Jesus is teaching us a few really important things about praying and about who's listening. The two people in Jesus' parable come with extravagant big requests. And Jesus said, if this is how they came to a stingy friend and an unrighteous judge, how much more boldly should you come to your heavenly father? Because he's tender 
and he's trustworthy. This woman approached as a stranger, and we come as beloved children. This woman had no right in, or claim in court. We have the blood of Jesus by which we enter boldly before the throne room of grace. The judge we approach is not one who doesn't care about justice or us. No, the judge that we approach is a heavenly father who cared so much about us that he climbed out of the judge's chair and satisfied the demands of justice on our behalf so he could share the riches of his kingdom with us. The friend that we approach is not asleep. He's not reluctant. He's so attentive that he knows the number of hairs on our heads and when every single sparrow falls from the sky, one who didn't just give us loaves of bread when we needed it, he gave us the bread of his very own torn flesh. Doesn't this make praying easier when you know who's listening? This is why we pray boldly. You know who naturally approaches me most boldly? My kids. Ellie Joyce had this thing for a very long time. I'm glad she grew out of it because Ashley and I almost died several times. She would enter so quietly in the middle of the night. And she wouldn't wake us. She would just stand with her blanket over her head next to the bed. You know that feeling where you kind of feel like someone's looking at you? That's how you would be awoken, only to glance around in a dark room and see a child covered in a blanket, just standing there. She did it all the time. I'm telling you, once you wake up to that, you don't go back to bed. You go start prayer walking the house, just for some reason. You just, it just scares you. What's wrong, Ellie? I'm thirsty. Okay, boo. Who else could get away with that without being punched? I mean, my wife maybe, and even then I would say, hey, babe, go get your own water, please. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll get it if your legs are broken, but, but when it's one of my kids, what would a good dad say? Wake your mom up. She'll go get it for you. That's probably what you'd say. <laughs> no, you get up. You get up and you go meet the need because that's what a good dad does. My kids still approach me with undaunted confidence. I got a text this week from Claire and saying she doesn't have a license yet. She said, can I drive mom's car to go to the house to get the, the little key fob to go work out? Uh, no, no, you cannot do that. Ellie asked repeatedly, can we go to Sonic and get a slushie? And I first say, no, mom promised me we could. Okay, well, we're in. But not even for little things, but big things. Kids approach you with undaunted confidence. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to find the secret to prayer, friends, go to the Father with the same kind of confidence. He's tender and he's trustworthy. I was talking with a friend this week, and she said, you know what, I don't really pray very much because I'm afraid if I ask God for the things that he's kind of kind of do this bait and switch thing. That I'm going to ask him to make me more loving and he's going to put really, really, really difficult people in my life to teach me to become more loving or more patient or more humble. And I don't want to learn those things, so I just don't pray. And my heart broke and I said, friend, that is not who God is. Now, God does take very terrible situations and make good out of them. He does do that. 
And sometimes he will let difficulty or use the difficulty in your life to bring you the greater value that you don't even know what you really want. But he's trustworthy. That's why in verse 9, it tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. The Father was willing to answer and ready to give. The Augustine quote from last week, he's a better giver than we are a receiver. He will not deceive or harm you. Some fish or an eel can look like a snake. He's not doing the bait and switch. Or a scorpion that's curled up might in low light look like an egg. He's not doing that to you. Because he's trustworthy. And I wonder in a room this size, what area of your life are you scared to surrender to God? Because you think he's going to do the bait and switch thing. Maybe you're scared to surrender your dating life because you're, going to, you're afraid that you're going to end up alone. Or scared to surrender your sexuality that you'll end up unsatisfied. Or scared or afraid to surrender your career to him that you'll be unfulfilled. Or your finances that you'll end up wanting. Or your life's purpose that you'll end up insignificant. Or surrender your time that you'll end up bored. Friends, what are you afraid to surrender to God? That might be the very place that Jesus wants to meet you this morning. To remind you just who you're talking to. He's trustworthy. The Father is willing to answer and ready to give. He's not only wealthy, but he's generous. He's not only powerful, but he's kind. He will not deceive or harm you. Let me end this way. I invite the band to come on up. But look, look at what he actually gives in this passage. In Matthew's gospel, he makes the point that the good father gives good gifts to his kids. And rightly so, Matthew 7, verse 11. But Luke tells us even the, the greater gift Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, the Heavenly Father, give, not what you ask for, but give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You ask for bread, and instead of bread, he gives you the manufacturing place. You ask for an egg, and he gives you several thousand chickens. You ask for something so small and insignificant and he gives you something so much greater and it's not just the thing that he gives you. He gives you, he literally gives us himself. Isn't that crazy? You're praying to a God who is not just willing to do stuff for you. He's willing to give you himself. In the Old Testament, we see that God was for us. He was the God who was for his people. And in the Gospels, God came down to be with us. He was God with us. And it was scandalous and amazing that the God would leave the throne room of heaven to come and spend time with us and walk the dirty roads. And he did it with this scandalous humility. 
But after Pentecost, it's not just God for us and God with us. It's God in us. Isn't that amazing? God can actually be within us. Jesus said, I have to go so the Holy Spirit can come. Friends, this just isn't good news. This is literally the best news. God was not content to live among us. His desire was to be within us, to be with us 24-7. What better gift could God give his kids? Several chapters later in 2 Timothy, Timothy's really discouraged. And Paul, his mentor, the Apostle Paul, is trying to encourage him. And he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. You read that, heard that before? But God didn't just come to give us advice, that he gives us supernatural wisdom and peace, a sound mind, the ability to think correctly about a situation, peace. He didn't come just to give us strength to accomplish a task, but Inside of us, every believer in this room resides the, the very power of God that was active, raising Jesus from the dead. The power of the resurrection lives inside of every believer. And more than that, he didn't just give us enough love and grace that we could love one difficult person. He gave us the relational capacity to love our families and also love our enemies. That's incredible. This is the spirit that's inside of you. He's called the comforter. For those of you in this room who are weary, hurting, grieving, he's the comforter. John 14 and 16 says that he's the teacher. He leads us to all truth. He gives discernment. He gives power. He literally brings encouragement. As we talked last week, he prays the things on our behalf that we don't even know we should start praying. So when we go to bed every night and dream of unicorns and Skittles or whatever we dream about, the Holy Spirit goes to work praying on our behalf. Isn't that incredible? This is our Father. And friends, you can trust him. What's on your heart today? You can bring to him. I want to pray for us. And if you would just... Assume a posture of prayer for a minute. We're not doing communion today. I want to lead you and give you some time to pray. Maybe you're not experiencing the peace and the power and a heart for the people that this passage talks about. You can experience that today. Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church of Philippi that bring all your anxieties to him, all your worries and concerns, all your doubts, your problems. Bring your weakness, bring your struggle, bring your heavy hearts. You can bring it to him, and he gives you peace. Maybe some in this room, that's what you'd be praying for this morning, that you would have peace. It's been a long time since you just had peace. Maybe about a certain situation. Maybe it's a 
thousand different situations that feel just enormous and just the anxiety is controlling you. It seems like it's just wrapping you around the neck. You can just bring those things to him. I encourage you even in a minute to take your little connection card and just write them down. Write the things that you're bringing to him. Your worries and concerns and burdens. Maybe it's the power of God you're not walking in. And that's what you'd ask for today. Lord, I've got friends at work that don't know you. I've, it's difficult for me to stand up for you at a, my workplace, at my school, with on my team, whatever it is. Lord, do you give me the power, the boldness to stand for you in difficult places? Maybe that's what you're asking for. I still believe that God does miracles. Maybe you're asking for one of those miracles. Maybe you grab a friend's hand or hug a friend's neck and just say, will you pray with me for my healing? Will you pray for me in this situation and that one? Let's go to this loving Father together. Maybe for others of you as people, there's people in your life that if they're Christians, they're not acting like Christians. And if they're not, they're just acting lost. And God's put you in their pathway to love them well. Maybe it's people. I'm going to pray for us in a minute. And I would just ask that right there where you're at, if you just write two or three people's names down on a card that you're praying for, praying that they would come to faith. Maybe they've walked away from the faith and they're struggling, their doubts are suffocating them, that God would give them the gift of faith. God, I love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the people in this room. Lord, I thank you that you're trustworthy and tender. You're powerful and personal. And Lord, we know who we're praying to. God, would you do such things in our hearts this morning that we'd never forget it. This would be one of those days where something shifted, that we went from consumer to contributor from casual to disciple from religion to a relationship with the father who loves us in Jesus mighty name we pray amen our prayer team is going to be at the back we're going to give you several minutes just to pray where you're at if you'd like to grab one of their hands or hug their necks I encourage you to go do that and just pray together. Maybe you just.